we are living in an imperfect society right now. That has to be understood. And the work towards fixing that has got to be present. Yet at the same time, if we're not acknowledging our progress, if we're not acknowledging what we've gotten done, if we're not taking a moment and taking a beat and giving thanks to those who put in the work before us, then we're not just being disrespectful, we're being disingenuous. This is our Independence Day episode. And during a time that's all about national unity and hot dogs, I wanted to talk about why patriotism has become so controversial lately. In some ways, it's not a surprise that after everything that's happened in this country over the past few years, there are lots of people, particularly young people and Democrats, who don't consider themselves proud to be Americans. I'm Charlotte Alter, senior correspondent for Time, and this is Person of the Week. So today, our guest is Maryland Governor Wes Moore, a young Democrat and self-identified patriot who's on a mission to reclaim American patriotism for people who feel alienated from it. He's only the third Black person in history to be elected governor and the only Black governor currently serving in office. He's also a military veteran, a former nonprofit CEO, and a best-selling author. I learned so much from Governor Moore about how to be patriotic, even while reckoning with this country's past. Hey, Charlotte. Hey, Governor Moore. How are you? I'm good. How you doing? Good. Um, Governor Moore, what's behind you? What are those photos on the wall behind you? So I've decided to use my wall space, not with like degrees and all that kind of stuff, but they're all family pictures. And so that picture right there is me in sweatpants sitting with my son. Uh, that one right there is our son and our new puppy who we just got. We just got a rescue dog. Oh, my uh, gosh. Named, what's, named what's Tucker. Well, his name is Tucker Balti. So Tucker Balti Moore. Oh, so a dog with a middle name. You don't see that every day. You don't. You don't. <laughs> so is there stuff in the governor's mansion where you're like, don't touch that. That is an antique. That is like an original <laughs> that document. That is older than all of us combined <laughs> times three. <laughs> there, I mean, there is. I mean, it's, and that's a beautiful thing about the governor's mansion and, and being here is, you know, this, like I think about this building right here. This is the oldest operating statehouse in the country. You know, that we are literally, and it's not lost at all, that just downstairs is where George Washington resigned his commission, where, you know, Annapolis isn't just the capital of Maryland. Annapolis used to be our nation's capital. And it was literally in this building that George Washington said that the power isn't mine. The power belongs to the people. And he willfully gave power back. And so I always say that the foundation of our democracy, the idea that we in this country actually honor elections and we believe in orderly transitions, that its foundation is from Maryland, is from Annapolis, because right here is where George Washington kind of set that pace for how the United States was going to function when it came to its democracies. Wow, well, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I'm really excited to talk about patriotism with you. That's what I really wanted to get you on to talk about today. But before we go there, I want to just tell our listeners a little bit about you and where you come from and your path to the governor's mansion. So you've had this incredibly diverse career. You're a best-selling author. Your book, The Other Westmore, was a massive bestseller. Oprah loved it. Um, <laughs> you're a former investment banker. You were the CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation. You're a TV host and a producer, and you've done all of these things and a veteran. What made you, after all that, decide 
to run for political office? <laughs> you know, I, I say I, I've been a public servant for much of my life. I just haven't been a politician. And I was, at that time, I was running uh, one of the largest poverty-fighting organizations in this country. But I also knew that if we are not fixing the systems that continue to allow people to fall between the cracks, then we're just going to repeatedly find ourselves cleaning up the debris that comes from broken systems. Yeah. You know, when I told people, they said, what made you want to get into politics? And I said, I didn't. I wanted to be the governor. I said, you know, if you actually want to address these issues, and if you want to address them in a real and in a thorough way, you have to understand the role that policies are playing in that. Because in many ways, all these organizations, all the nonprofit organizations, the social service organizations, what essentially they are doing, they are helping to cover over cracks. Mm -hmm. The reason that we have organizations that focus on food insecurity is because we have so many people who are food insecure, right? The reason that we have educational uh, nonprofits is because we have so many people who are finishing an education and don't have a shot at either college or a career. So we have to actually be able to fix systems. Really? So I'm curious, you know, was there one thing from your previous careers, and I use careers in plural, <laughs> that you think uniquely prepared you to be governor? Mm. You know, I, um, I definitely don't think that, you know, like, for example, when I was leading soldiers— in combat. I definitely wasn't like, well, you know, one day when I'm the governor, this is going to be really helpful. Or when I was running a business or running a nonprofit, and I was like, oh, no, one day when I'm the state's chief executive. But I do think that all of those experiences have uniquely prepared me for the seat because I also believe that leadership is leadership is leadership. Do you know how to build a team? Mm -hmm. Do you know how to stay mission focused? Do you know how to prioritize? Do you understand budgets? And, and most importantly, are you connected to the people? You know, I was never an establishment choice, right? I did not come from a political family. I didn't come from a political lineage. I didn't get my power from that. I got my power from the people. I got my power from the fact that I've been working in communities for my whole life. Hmm. I know that you have this very powerful personal story. Can you tell me a little bit about your father's death and what you remember about that and, and how that affected you? Yeah. The thing that I remember about the aftermath was at his funeral. And my mother tells a story how when I went to go view the body, I actually asked my dad if he was going to come with us. Like I oh still didn't God. fully process oh. why he was there. And you were three, right? Yeah, I was three. I was three. I was just months away from my fourth birthday. Wow. And I think... I think about how, how tough it was for me or for my sisters, but the person who was really toughest was on my mom, who mm -hmm. she was now going to raise three kids on her own. And this was not the life that she prepared for, the life that she expected, the life that she prayed over. And we just saw how that incident, that moment that she nor any of us were prepared for was something that just changed a trajectory of a family and, and really had our family reeling uh, for a while with his untimely passing. So can you tell me about, you know, how that formed the type of kid you were and why you ended up going to military school? Yeah, I, um, I, I think I was like a lot of kids, I guess, who come up with, you know, these adverse childhood experiences and these traumas. And you see how that trauma turns itself and shows itself into some, some pretty 
pretty destructive behavior. Um, I think I was a kid who was just feeling a lot of pain. Yeah. And I think I was just a kid who was feeling a lot of uh, a lot of hurt and a lot of uncertainty, and we were moving around. And the only stability that you felt in that way was this measure of instability, mm-hmm. right? And then eventually, I mean, literally to the point that I was, I mean, I was 11 years old when I had handcuffs on my wrists. Um, wow. When I was 13, I was sent to a military school that was supposed to be for a year because of some issues I got into. And uh, I had a lot of anger issues, which I think showed themselves in, you know, I was hurting a lot of people who frankly didn't deserve to get hurt. And, you know, I was, I was always a, a pretty big kid and it just showed itself in really bad ways. Um, and I was much more concerned about being a, a class clown than, than anything else, because, you know, that was, that was the attention mm-hmm. that you really kind of sought. And so my mother had been threatening me to send me to military school for years and I never believed her. And I kind of kept blowing her off. And finally she was like, no, I'm serious. You're going. And I ran away five times in the first four days from the military school that I got sent to in Pennsylvania. But eventually I began realizing that the people who I was with and the things that we were going through together, that these were actually things that were helping to change and shape my life and give me a chance to remake an identity about who I wanted to be. So you end up going to military school, then you serve in the military, you're a Rhodes Scholar. What was the hardest thing for you about serving? Because you were serving during the post 9-11 wars, correct? Yeah. And there are a lot of people, particularly younger people, who served in those wars or, you know, were very aware of those wars, who had kind of conflicted feelings about American intervention abroad. Was there ever a time that you felt conflicted? You know, when I first joined the Army, we weren't a nation at war. It was 1996 when I first signed up. I was 17 years old. In fact, I was so young, I I couldn't even join by myself. I needed my mother's signature to fill out the paperwork uh, because I was still a minor. But after my teenage years, my mother was willing to sign whatever paperwork that they put in front of her (laughs) to ship me off. And and so, but that was the current condition in the United States, right? I signed up because um, I'd gone to military school. So I felt like I was good at leadership. I felt like it was something I wanted to do. I knew it would help pay for college. But it wasn't under a context of war. Mm -hmm. And then obviously, uh, you know, a few years later, After 9-11, everything changed. And, you know, I remember linking up with the 82nd Airborne Division and then deploying to Afghanistan. And it's interesting because I know the complexities of the military and military conflict. I know the complexities of this country's history. And I know the complexities, particularly when it comes to African-Americans who are serving in uniform. The thing that I also know, though, was this. I feel like I, my family my ancestors deserve as much pride in the evolution of this country as anybody else. You know, my pride in this country isn't blind. Mm-hmm. Um, my pride in this country isn't just flag waving. My pride in this country is I know its history. Yeah. I know the unevenness of its history. And I know that it's because of people who were willing to sacrifice. It's because of people who were willing to demand better for future generations, even if they wouldn't see it themselves, that opportunities that are now present exist. Yeah. So 
you've been really open about sort of talking and thinking about patriotism and what patriotism means, particularly at a time when there's so many divisions. You told my colleague Molly Ball in an interview for Time a couple months ago, um, this is a quote from you, quote, I'm truly just offended when I hear people call themselves patriots whose definition is trying to destroy democracy because I know what patriotism is and I've seen it with my own eyes. Can you explain to us your definition of patriotism and how it might be kind of different from how some of the more extreme nationalists define their patriotism? Yeah. You know, I look at people who claim to have a love of country or they wave an American flag while actively denying people's humanity, while actively looking past a person's basic level of humanness. And I think to myself, you can't claim to love a country when you hate half of the people in it, right? It just doesn't make sense. Right. And if you truly love this country, if you truly believe in the basis of this country, you have to understand that this country is not just a beautiful mosaic of people of vast backgrounds, of vast family lineages, of socioeconomic backgrounds, and of different type of stories. And that's what makes the beauty of the United States. That's actually in many ways what makes our country so powerful. But it's also what's made our journey so remarkable. The day of my inauguration, we actually started down at the Annapolis docks, very intentionally, and had a wreath-laying ceremony in the morning. And then hundreds of us marched from the Annapolis docks up to the State House. The reason that I wanted to do that was this. The Annapolis docks is not only beautiful, but the Annapolis docks is home to one of the earliest slave ports in this country's history. Wow. And then we marched together. And again, people from all backgrounds, ages, walks of life, marched together to the State House where I was inaugurated. And by the way, the State House was built by enslaved people. That's our history. Right. I'm literally someone whose great-grandfather was a minister and the Ku Klux Klan started threatening him and eventually he picked up his family in the middle of the night and left. Didn't leave the state, didn't leave a town. He left the country and they went back to Jamaica. Wow. So the fact that I can be both the grandson of someone who was run out of this country by the Ku Klux Klan and also be the first black governor in the history of the state of Maryland, both of those two things are facts and they can live together. Mm-hmm. But the power of those two things living together is that shows the beauty of our evolution and the beauty of our journey. Right. Is that we were never a country that was intended to be static. We were never a country that was intended to mark time. We were always intended to push and to pull and to draw that moral arc to a better place. And that's why this idea that patriotism somehow means pulling back rights that patriotism means telling people where they can and can't go, what they can and can't read, if women should have reproductive rights. That's not patriotism. In fact, it's the antithesis of it. Right. And so I'm wondering, given everything that's happened in the recent past, where we do have people, for example, storming the Capitol, waving American flags, you know, how do you resolve the fact that we live in a country where people are living in two completely different information ecosystems and they both feel like they are defending democracy against the other one. Well, I think it shows that progress 
is something that you consistently have to fight for. Mm-hmm. And that change doesn't happen with an election. Right. Right. No one should have expected that the country was going to change because we had an African-American president or whatever like that. That's not how this works. Some of the bloodiest and some of the most complicated moments in the civil rights movement, do you know when they happened? They happened after the Civil Rights Act was passed. This is not something where we have to look at this on some large duration and say like, okay, well, at this point marked when everything changed. No, this marked a measure of progress. It marks an opportunity. But it's, that doesn't mean that now we have to stop working. That doesn't mean we have to stop fighting. You know, where I became only the third African-American to be elected governor in the history of this country. And, and the only black governor currently serving, right? And the only black governor in this country right now. Um, and people said, well, that's a remarkable accomplishment. I said, okay, but that's not the assignment. <laughs> like, right. at the end of the day, if, if, you know, at the end of my two terms, if people say, well, he was the first black governor and that's all you have to say about me, I failed. Because that means I missed the opportunity. That means I missed the assignment. The assignment was never to be the first. The assignment was never to, to, to make history, right? The assignment was to continue pushing to make sure that all the issues and the things that we're speaking about, that we now have a unique opportunity to address. We have to make sure that we understand our collective responsibility to continue pushing forward because that's the only way we're going to have sustainable growth. And we have to understand the pressures will push back against you. Right. That this is not going to be simple. It is not going to be easy. There will be people who will try to make it so that there is an instant reverse from the progress you're making. Our job is to be stronger and to push harder. After the break, Maryland Governor Wes Moore on the meaning of contemporary patriotism. There's a lot of evidence that suggests Barack Obama's election was for a lot of people, particularly younger people, their last really patriotic moment, the last moment where they felt great about this country. And then a lot of stuff happened after that that they did not feel so good about. And there are polls that show that, you know, there was just a poll from Morning Consult pretty recently that showed that, you know, something like three quarters of baby boomers feel patriotic, but among millennials and Gen Z, it's like, you know, less than half. So do we need a kind of new type of 21st century patriotism? Because it feels sometimes like the old patriotism isn't encompassing what this younger generation wants to feel about this country. I mean, how do you how do you develop a new type of patriotism that people can feel good about, given everything that's been happening in this country recently? Well, I think you stop allowing other people to wrestle it away and bastardize it. So tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, you stop allowing people who are literally working to destroy the very fabric of democracy to call themselves patriots. I think we have to call that out and challenge it every single time. So who are you talking about when you say that? Yeah, I'm talking about, like, for example, I I ended up in my last election running against the Republican nominee. And his definition of patriotism was asking his friends to join him on January 6th. That's not patriotism. 
And so I was unapologetic and unabashed about being able to challenge him on that. And so I think how we really come up with a, a frame of what does it mean to be a patriot? What does it mean to actually believe in and create policies? And the reason why I think what we're doing here in the state of Maryland is resonating with younger Marylanders. The policies that we're pushing for here aren't just policies that we think are speaking to Gen Z and younger voters to say like why this is your moment and why this is your time. It's reframing patriotism. Us being able to have a very aggressive climate plan is patriotism. That when we say that we are going to get to 100% clean energy by 2035, when we say things like we want to ensure that we are going to be the offshore wind capital of the United States, like that's a patriotic frame because it means that we're creating a future that everybody can see and enjoy. When I say that we are going to be a place that is going to respect women's reproductive rights and be a safe haven for abortion rights and stop injecting politicians into conversations that should be exclusively between a woman and her doctor, that's patriotism. And so I think what we're doing is we're not, not only we're we not shying away from it, I'm a very proud progressive patriot. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask about the flag because you have an American flag behind you. Um, yeah. And one of the things that I've kind of noticed recently is I remember, you know, immediately after 9-11, my family put a flag outside of our home. But now, you know, more than 20 years later, it feels a little bit as if the flag is almost coded. It's almost politically coded. Republicans and conservatives love to wave the flag. You know, I think elected Democrats embrace the flag. But if you were to go to a, you know, a progressive convention or a march or any kind of gathering of, you know, just Democrats, I don't think you would necessarily see a lot of American flags. So what do you think about that? I mean, is it a problem that Republicans and conservatives seems to have claimed the imagery of the flag and it's almost coded conservative in some way? It's problematic that we allow them to. So what needs to change? I mean, I know that I and my family and my ancestors have as much claim to that flag as anybody else. I come from a family of patriots, where I come from a family of school teachers, and I come from a family of ministers, and I come from a family of operating engineers, and I come from a family of people who literally built this country with their hands. They are patriots. They own as much of this flag as anybody else. And I find it to be not just disrespectful, but frankly, a lack of knowing your history. Hmm to think that somebody can come in and because they are screaming louder or because they are not coming in with any facts about our history, that they can somehow call themselves a patriot and wrap themselves in American flag and that should make us flinch. It shouldn't. Yeah. You're making them win. Hmm. You're making them feel like their point is valid and it's not. Right. So on that note of history and facts, you know, there has been recently a long overdue reckoning with America's deeply racist past. And, you know, the 4th of July is the anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Many of the people who signed the Declaration of Independence enslaved people. Yeah. You know, what is your 4th of July celebration like with this knowledge? Mm. I think about a measurement of a 4th of July where, you know, 
it's important that we can acknowledge a measure of independence, right? It's important that we can acknowledge the fact that this was a country that was founded on ideals and founded on principles that we haven't always lived up to. That we are a country that had documents and words in those documents that were gorgeous. They just weren't always true. And I think it is important to say that we can both at the same time acknowledge the marvel of the United States because the United States is a marvel. Yeah. When you think about how it started, how did it begin, and that the fabric of our democracy and the fabric of our constitution is something that has really helped to lead how other countries think about their growth, their developments, their own constitutions. But also be able to say, but our history has been flawed, Mm -hmm. that our journey has been uneven, that our equities have been inequitable, and that loving your country doesn't mean lying about it, right? That you can both have a sense of wonderment and pride in how far we have come as a nation, and at the same time, know that still the foundation of that has to be truth. Right. It has to be how we actually got there and what it took for us to make this evolution as well. I celebrate the ideal, right? That's what I'm working towards. That's what, you know, when we talk about this idea of saying that we want to form a more perfect union, when we talk about that people have certain unalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that's what I celebrate. That's what I work towards. That's what I aspire towards. Not necessarily saying we all want to be more like James Madison <laughs> or anybody, you know, it, but it's, 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 let's be the country that we hope to be. And yet we're also so polarized right now. I mean, this country is perhaps more polarized than any time in recent memory. I don't want to say any time in history because we did have a civil war. Um, <laughs> but people can't even agree on who the people are. People can't even agree on basic facts about our history. They can't agree on basic facts about election outcomes. How do you create a sense of shared national identity when we Mm. seem to be losing a sense of shared reality? Well, one, I I think you're right. I think uh, when we think about this in, in historical context, when, you know, when people think that, you know, these are kind of the worst of times, I can point to quite a few moments in our nation's history that were worse in the way that we treated people. But I do know, I do know this is that we have to get to a point when we are actually willing to get to know each other again. I think part of the reason that we have these measurements of divides is because we've made it so easy to be divided. We've made it so easy for people to hide up in their corners. We made it very easy for people to only exist in an echo chamber. We make is that it very because of the e- internet, or what do you mean partially. by we made it so easy? I think it's partially things like internet. It's partially that people can curate their knowledge base, right? right? Where you can spend your time simply looking at information sources that are not used to educate; they're just used to validate, right? And you're never actually challenged. You're never actually learning new information. You're just simply hearing different voices tell you how right you are. And I think there is a measurement of danger in that. I mean, I remember when I decided I was running for governor, I had people who I served with in Afghanistan who were coming and campaigning for me. And many of them were not Marylanders. 
Many of them were not even Democrats, right? They were literally coming and knocking on doors and they were simply saying, let me tell you about the guy that I serve with. Because we got to know each other. They saw me at my best and my worst and I saw them at the same. And it eventually created a bond that was able to move past all the other political divisions that existed that was really powerful. And so the reason that we're encouraging people to come out and be public servants right now in Maryland and trying to fill the fact that we have 10,000 vacancies in our state government, that has real human implications in terms of means basic work's not being done. But also what it means is I want people to be able to lock arms and actually get the people's work done together. Right. Because I really do believe that the way we're able to address the divisiveness is we've got to get to know each other again. Right. That I think has been incredibly important for what we're actually trying to get done. Because one of the most important things you've got to get done in this moment is you've got to focus on healing. That our society needs a serious healing. And that means we've all got to be engaged in order to make that happen. Governor, what do you want your constituents and fellow Americans to think about this Independence Day? Hmm. Um, I want people to understand that we still have work to do. But at the same time, I want them understand that the work that we still have to do is not a reason for us not to acknowledge how much work has been done. I think we have to remember that we're living in an imperfect union. We are, right? As long as we have people who do not have access to basics, as long as we have people who don't have access to healthcare, as long as we have children who are coming up in schools that are not giving them what they need, as long as we have people who are working jobs, in some cases multiple jobs, and still living at or below a poverty line, we are living in an imperfect society right now. That has to be understood, and the work towards fixing that has got to be present. Yet at the same time, if we're not acknowledging our progress, if we're not acknowledging what we've gotten done, if we're not taking a moment and taking a beat and giving thanks to those who put in the work before us, then we're not just being disrespectful, we're being disingenuous. And so the thing that I would ask people to do is make space for both and make space for both of those truths to be real and to know that one should not contradict or counteract the other. Okay, Governor Moore, this has been such a fascinating conversation, but now it's time for us to learn a bit more about you in the last segment of our show, called The Last Time. So, when's the last time your new dog had an accident in the governor's mansion, and who cleaned it up? <laughs> uh, it's actually been a few weeks now, but I'd say the last time was probably about a month ago. Um, I discovered it because I accidentally stepped on it. <laughs> and so I was the one who had to clean it up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. When's the last time you ate a hot dog? Um, actually, on Saturday at my son's Little League baseball game. Well, that's my next question. When's the last time you went to a baseball game? Oh, I go to baseball games all the time. Um, I'm a huge baseball fan. And so I'm loving the Orioles right now. I think the Orioles are the most exciting team in all of baseball. And so whether it's Little League baseball games for my son or it's the Orioles game, which we're going to go to tonight, uh, I'm at the ballpark all the time. And I love it. When's the last time you didn't have to wear a suit to the office? <laughs> um, you know, actually, there's a few times, there's a few days. Uh, and I try to even do it, you know, a few days during the week where I, I'm, not, I'm not wearing a suit. Where is it just because like, you're you know, like, I don't want to? Yeah, or? it's just I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to. 
Um, <laughs> I, and I, you know, it's funny. I remember during the campaign trail once, it was like 95 degrees outside. And all the candidates were out there in their, you know, slacks and button-up shirts and da-da-da. And I went out there in shorts and a polo shirt. And people are like, oh, he's being disrespectful to the process. I'm like, no, nah, I'm, just, I'm just hot. I'm not going to wear, <laughs> I'm not wearing all that. It's 95 degrees outside. <laughs> Make me. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? And so, listen, I am who I am. And, uh, and so, it, you know, if you come here and, uh, and you say, oh, the governor's not wearing a tie, the governor's not wearing a suit, it's, yeah. I, am, I am who I am. Okay, last one. When's the last time you watched a movie with your kids? Oh, um, actually— uh, we're going out this week. We're going to go see a movie. Um, and we're going out to an outdoor uh, drive-in movie theater. It's a spot called Benji's over in Baltimore County. And it's a long-running outdoor movie theater. But we're going to go out there and, uh, and go see a movie together out there. Under the stars. Great. Governor, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. This is great. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to our conversation with Maryland Governor Wes Moore. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to Person of the Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd really love to hear from you. So send us your tips or thoughts on our show to personoftheweekattime.com. I'm Charlotte Alter. See you next week. Person of the Week is hosted by Charlotte Alter. It's produced by Nina Bisbano and India Witkin. Our senior producer is Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Katie Feather. This episode was mixed by Rebecca Seidel. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our fact checker is Joseph Frischmuth. Person of the Week is a co-production of Time Studios and Sugar 23. At Time, our executive producers are Mike Beck and Sam Jacobs. At Sugar 23, our executive producers are Mike Mayer, Michael Sugar, and Liam Billingham. Sasha Mathias is the executive producer of Audio at Time. You can find us online at time.com slash person of the week and wherever you get your podcasts.